This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stable coins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. If you look at Bankman-Fried as someone who is trying to cheat you from the start, it all makes perfect sense, right? It's all these old Wall Street stories, all these old Wall Street frauds. Just, it's in the, you know, it's in the the, the new bottle of crypto trading. I think the um, the venture funds and their lack of due diligence is the most easily explained. We were in the middle of a VC mania. I mean, let's call it what it was, the private market mania. And for a certain subcategory of founders um, who get the reputation, perhaps purchased, of being, you know, a can't miss, you just need to be in the deal. You don't even care about the terms. You don't look at the terms. You know, so I think the, the VC firms not doing due diligence um, is the most explainable to me. The wheels of justice turn slow when they do turn. Um, but I think there's a lot more fraud to be smoked out in the market. Um, and the rising interest rates and sort of uh, tightening of the cash uh, and the turning off of the liquidity is, is only going to accelerate the exposure of those frauds. Yeah, guys, this is going to be a fun one. There's a lot to dive into here. We're going to try to unwind the entire sticky situation of SBF, Alameda, and FTX. Uh, ben, maybe I could put you on the spot a little bit here. You wrote a great piece called The MacGuffin 2 that was really detailing uh, your entire thoughts on SBF, Alameda, FTX, and how all three of those different things kind of intertwined. Can you just do me a favor and explain uh, what you wrote in that piece? Sure, happy to. So the you're right. the The name of the piece was the MacGuffin, uh, and that's taken from I think it was Alfred Hitchcock. That was his famous phrase that the MacGuffin is what you see in movies or in the scripts of movies. It's the object of desire, and every movie you've ever seen, every TV show, scripted TV show you've ever seen, it has a MacGuffin, right? It's what the plot revolves around, and. For a lot of us in finance, and I, I think certainly it's true for me, certainly it's true for SBF. You know what? Sorry. As an aside, I'm not going to refer to him as SBF. I'm going to call him Bankman Freed, the same way I would refer using the last name of any adult criminal. So, uh, I, I, you know, the MacGuffin for Bankman Freed was what, a magical money machine, which is a classic MacGuffin that you see in lots of movies and TVs and you see in lots of uh, lives in, in in finance, and so by my my strong belief, and uh, started writing about this back in May with the MacGuffin Part One, uh, which also featured uh, Bankman Freed prominently. Uh, but my strong belief is that he started out in 2017 with what he thought was a magical money machine. And that was Alameda Research, his hedge fund, really one of the first, I would say, crypto hedge funds out there. And that's why it was a magical money machine, because he was early to the game, no dummy, hired some people who also weren't dummies. And so uh, I think there were a lot of, you know, dimes to be skinned from the trading that existed in crypto in 2017. So I think he did pretty well. There were some issues as some Wall Street Journal articles have come up about even lack of controls back then. A lot of people left. He was down to $30 million in AUM, apparently mm -hmm. in Alameda. Uh, but, you know, he had this thing. He had this hedge fund. I think that's where this all starts. I think what he clearly decided to do, kind of call it, 2018 going into 2019 was that the the Alameda hedge fund sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't it was down to 30 million AUM he had to try something different and what he did was what so many people do in finance is that they want to get into the flow business right hedge funds all about price you're buying low you're selling high you have to be right all the time to make money with your hedge fund. A flow business where you're a market maker, you're matching people on two sides of the of, of, of a trade, you don't have to be right all the time. You just have to be there. And uh, it, the flow business is a wonderful business for making money. That's the real business of Wall Street. It's flow. It's not being right on price. It's being the market maker, the middleman in a trade. 
So that's when he set up his company, FTX. Similarly, uh, offshore, uh, Bahamian registry, uh, as was Alameda. So that was the first step, and that took care of a lot of his problems, right? Because you had money coming in as accounts. They call it a, a, a an exchange, but it's, it's more like a broker-dealer. Hmm. And these terms kind of get a little arcane, perhaps, but all that means is he was both a participant in the trades through Alameda. He was a middleman in a trade through FTX. And he was also a broker in the trade, meaning you would have an account with FTX and he would provide uh, margin. He would lend you money to do trades and, of course, charge you a fee on that. So by call it 2019, he was in a much better situation, right? He, he no longer had this iffy hedge fund. He now had FTX, a broker-dealer, market-maker, middleman uh, that gave him a lot more stability. But there was still one problem, and that problem was he didn't have access to uh, U.S. money, Right, so uh, Alameda offshore hedge fund, you could get investors from, and I'm kind of using the the air quotes here because they didn't take investors the way you know my hedge fund would take an investor, right? They didn't have limited partners; they only took loans from people, uh, mm. with which they guaranteed to pay you back, and they use that word guarantee, which should always give you the heebie-jeebies if you're looking at a hedge fund. They offer they they guaranteed that they would pay you back fifteen percent a year, with no money risk that you lent to the hedge fund. Right. So 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 there you are. You've got it's it's two thousand nineteen, uh, going to two thousand twenty. You've got a hedge fund. You've got this market maker FTX, but you don't have access to U.S. money, uh, not retail U.S. money, not the big money in the U.S. And so that's when he decided to launch FTX US, right? So there's FTX.com, which is the Bahamian registry. That's the mothership. And then he started working. And by working, I mean started lobbying and um, uh, doing a lot of donations and, uh, you know, all the stuff that goes on with lobbying to get a US registered again, broker-dealer, set up. And he launched that in, you know, famously with the Super Bowl commercials uh, this, Jan this past January, and that was FTX US. So, all right, that's another step forward in creating this, you know, behemoth entity that just gets money flowing to him. But he's still got a problem. And that is that FTX US, it, you know, increases his net worth a little bit because he's the principal owner of all of these entities. But it's still hard to get money directly from the US accounts in FTX US to the offshore FTX and to Alameda. It's still a little tough, right? Because you've got those pesky US laws to worry about. So what happened then in this just this past summer is that along with the Terra Luna collapse, Three Arrows Capital, uh, a Singapore-based crypto trading fund, its collapse, he saw an opportunity. And it wasn't an opportunity to make money in a trade. They were he had lost a lot of money through Alameda in particular when Terra Luna collapsed. But it was an opportunity to acquire U.S. Uh, accounts that he could more easily drain of money than he was able to drain FTX U.S. And so in particular, that was Voyager Digital and the one that I know most about, BlockFi. I say though I know the most about it because... BlockFi has been more public in uh, publishing their their finances, essentially, their loan book. 
And then with their bankruptcy filing, we've also learned a lot more about uh, BlockFi. So in, I guess it was in June of this year, he arranged a, what you would call a control transaction, uh, a loan, a line of credit from FTX US, $400 million to BlockFi, and then the option to acquire it. But, as, but he took control in the, in, in the summer, similarly with Voyager Digital. And my, my strong belief is, you know, he wasn't taking control in the way that you would think you'd typically do an acquisition. Oh, you know, how much money does the company make? How does this fit into our strategic plans and the like? No, no, it's, it's a lot simpler than that. Right? Uh, what he was trying to do with BlockFi and successfully achieved with BlockFi was he wanted to get all that money, principally U.S. accounts. Uh, I think BlockFi... When they declared bankruptcy, they had about 700,000 individual accounts. And the goal was to get that money out of the U.S. and into FTX.com, the Bahamian broker-dealer, and particularly to get it into Alameda. And it was successful with both of those issues. So, uh, you know, what's unclear is how much money had gone to Alameda before the control transaction and how much took place afterwards. My strong belief is that BlockFi all along was lending a lot of money to, to, to Alameda. But by the time BlockFi declared bankruptcy, there was $680 million, uh, you know, three quarters of, or, or two thirds of a, of a billion dollars that had been lent to Alameda. That money is gone. They'll never get that back. But perhaps even more troubling was that there was another $330 million or so in client accounts that had been transferred in the custody of those accounts to FTX.com. Not FTX US, but FTX.com, the overseas entity. Hmm. Uh, And that money is locked up and I suspect gone forever as well. So the, the whole point of this is that my strong belief is that if you if you look at Bankman-Fried as someone who is trying to cheat you from the start, it all makes perfect sense, <laughs> right? You know, we start with the hedge fund. The hedge fund has a good start, but a difficult, you know, even early days. Mm-hmm. It offers guaranteed payments, rights in its market materials, you know, high returns with no risk. It's clearly a scam. He builds FTX as a way to essentially consolidate his position and cover up the Ponzi. He goes from FTX.com to FTX US, and he goes from FTX US to acquiring control positions in these crypto yield uh, vehicles like BlockFi, like Voyager Digital, which had billions of dollars in them. And they successfully drained those companies of, of all that money. So, like I say, it's to me it was uh, let's call it old wine in new bottles. Uh, it's the old wine of Ponzi. It's the old wine of uh, you know off balance sheet entities. It's the old wine of getting money out of the U.S. and into an international jurisdiction where you have carte blanche to do with it what you will. It's all these old Wall Street stories, all these old Wall Street frauds. Just it's in the, you know, it's in the the, the new bottle of crypto trading. I think that's an admirable summary. I agree in virtually all parts of what you said. Um, I, Doomberg, I, I, I want to give you a chance to respond here. And, and one thing that I want to touch on while we're in summarization mode of how all this played out is the role that FTT, the token, had in extracting funds as well. Uh, but Doomberg, I want to give you a chance to respond before we get into that. Yeah, hey, Michael, great to be here, Ben. I, I really enjoyed that piece, and I concur in total with everything that you just said. Um, I'll add a little flavor, and then maybe we can talk about FTT. But um, back in 2016, uh, and we wrote about this last year in one of our Doomberg pieces, um, we, uh, we had the opportunity to invest in a startup. So in the equity stack of a startup that was working in the Bitcoin space, and we knew nothing about cryptocurrencies whatsoever. And as we tell the story in our piece, you know, um, 
we bet the jockey, the, the founder was a, a rainmaker, so to speak, had a successful exit under his belt. And so we just said, hey, we'll put some money in. We participated in the seed round and, and then Bitcoin went bananas in 2017. And so we started to pay careful attention as our little investment suddenly was marked uh, at life-changing numbers. Uh, of course, it ultimately ended up zeroing out, but we developed this model that we call sort of two pipelines. And it was very clear to us, you know, if we drew a circle around crypto universe and we drew a circle around the real regulated economy, um, it was clear to us how fiat, in this case, let's say US dollars, could go into the crypto universe, but it wasn't clear to us what could be going on inside that circle that would generate more fiat than went in, um, especially when you account for leakage and fraud and theft and the types of things that happen in unregulated markets. And we've kept that model uh, through the years and people have criticized it. You know, that's the same for gold, but we think there's very, very important differences between the two universes. And um, when you follow the fiat in this case, as Ben has done so brilliantly in his piece, um, it's very clear, um, not only do you see the sort of nature of the crimes, but also the intent. Um, there's a laser focus on the flow of U.S. dollars because ultimately um, trading magic beans back and forth with each other in the crypto universe doesn't actually mean you have that much fiat that you can pull out. And so there's a complication here when people talk about $8 billion of, $8 billion of customer funds missing. Um, in reality, if you just sum up all of the fiat that ever went in, and then he got his hands on that sort of the nature of the true loss, the mark to market value of the magic beans that you had when he filed for bankruptcy um, is of little consequence, I think, on a go forward basis. Um, and so um, this sets up for some very interesting precedent setting bankruptcy cases. You know, we've not really gone through a full proper bankruptcy case in the crypto world. Um, will you get your coins back? Um, will you get whatever residual dollars are left? Um, will you get a share of that? Um, there's some interesting um, progress in the Voyager Digital case um, that we referenced in one of our pieces as well. And, you know, so if you're going to get an FTT token back out of bankruptcy or a fraction of the number of FTT tokens, um, that's one thing if they're trading hands at $22, but um, right now it's, you know, a buck and change. Uh, you get your tokens back. You don't get the value that you had on the day that your assets were frozen. And so there's an enormous amount to unwind here. Um, and then last point before turning it back over to you is, is the role that FTT tokens play is the role that any of these other um, you know, cryptocurrencies uh, tied to projects play. It's it, they, they're, they're sort of a sleight of hand where they pretend as though these are kind of wink, wink, um, uh, representing shares in the stock of FTX. But you can't do that, of course, because then you're selling unregulated securities. Um, but in reality, um, you know, it's a classic example of, um, of what our friend Dirty Bubble Media calls sort of the, the flywheel, where you uh, issue a small amount of, of a token wash trade it up to infinity and mark the full value of all of your tokens uh, at the last trading price and then pledge that for collateral to get um, either you know us dollars or bitcoin something more tangible something more liquid something that you can exit the universe with more fiat than you left with uh, in it and so this whole follow the fiat uh, is critically important i see ben wants to make a point so i'll, I'll turn it over to him no i i want to i want to add to that last line you said that you pledge it for collateral right so this gets to the whole notion of how you are able to get, I'll call it real money, which it's U.S. dollars, yes, but it's, I think mostly in this case it's Bitcoin, right? Uh, and it's very notable, right, that when FTX files for bankruptcy, it has no Bitcoin, right? It has none, right? because it, what they were doing was they're spending the Bitcoin, Right, on, on everything that they had to spend essentially real money for. So that's uh, stakes in lots of private companies. That's, uh, you know, a billion dollars in marketing, you know, 140 million or whatever it was to buy the naming rights for the Miami Heat Stadium. Um, you know, the Super Bowl commercials, they don't pay for themselves. Right, you know, so, uh, so there was real money that needed to be spent. Uh, and to get it, you you have to post collateral because most of this money, whether it was the the money that was lent to Alameda, the you know the the way that money was flowing through and the accounts that went into to 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 FTX.com, it's basically people lending you something, saying here you go. Now you have to give me something back in return that I can hold on to essentially as my earnest money. Or I'll put it another way, right? Oh, 
I've got this $400 million line of credit. I'm BlockFi. I've got a $400 million line of credit uh, from FTX US. Great. I'd, I'd like to draw that down, please, FTX. Can you please send me $400 million? And they say, I could do that, right? But, you know, instead, why don't I give you FTT? Why don't, why don't you take this as the collateral for the loans? Why don't you take this as, you know, in lieu of, you know, dollars? What are we talking about dollars for? Uh, why don't you do that? And in the case of BlockFi, they said, okay, we'll do that because they were controlled by uh, FTX. You know, the, it's just all related party transactions to Doomberg's point, and this is how you wash stuff, and this is how you create or maintain the value in something you just made up, an unregistered security like FTT that's basically designed to be wink-wink, a tracking stock for FTX. So, it, it again, these are all very old scams that have been used for if not decades, if not centuries, at least decades. And it's why you have things like, well, you have to register a security. So you can't be like Max Bialystock and the producers and sell the ownership of the play, you know, five times over. But, you know, it's, it's all these old scams that they were just redoing all over again. But this issue of posting collateral using an unregistered security, FTT, supposedly a tracking stock in your company. You know, it's that collateral posting and what's and what happens when you start trading collateral that I think that so many people just aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And this this gets to the kind of the last point I want to try to make because a lot of what happened here sadly wasn't illegal. Uh, a lot of what happened here happened under the magic of rehypothecation, and this is a this is a story that every institutional investor has had to learn, and a lot of them learned it the hard way in the Great Financial Crisis when Lehman went under. But but here's the idea of rehypothecation, and again, this is all totally legal. If I have an account with a broker dealer. As an institution, maybe I've got a prime broker that was Bear Stearns, or maybe it was Lehman Brothers. People listening to this podcast, maybe you've got a margin account with, you know, Robinhood, right? I'm not saying Robinhood is is, is involved, but I'm saying it's the nature of these accounts. If you have an account with a broker on which you can borrow money, the broker has a lot of control over your assets. Because typically when you have a margin account, you say, oh, I want to trade. I want to trade crypto. Or I want to I want to earn interest on my crypto. Or, um, you know, anything except, no, you're just the custodian and it just sits there. Anything other than that, you've probably got a situation where you have what's called a margin account, meaning you could borrow money from that broker dealer. Whether you do or not, you could. And if you can borrow money, then everything you've pledged as collateral for your borrowing, and typically in these accounts, everything you have is your collateral for what you borrow from the broker. If you've got an account like that, then by the magic of rehypothecation, the broker can take your collateral and they can use it for a loan that they get with someone else. Now, that sounds crazy, right? That the broker can take your collateral and pledge it to someone else who you have no relationship with for a loan that the broker now gets. And this is the scary part, right? If the broker can't pay back the loan, if they are BlockFi and they declare bankruptcy, if they are FTX and they declare bankruptcy, well, the the person they took the loan from, they have a claim on your collateral. 
Crazy, right? But totally legal. That is rehypothecation, and that's why you have to be so incredibly careful with what's called counterparty risk. If you have an account with someone and you're borrowing money from them, it's a margin account of any sort, if they go bankrupt, you may not be able to claim your collateral. Your collateral may have been used by the broker for them to get a loan. All completely legal, crazy as it sounds, but that's why you have to be so, so careful when you open up any of these trading accounts. I was just going to add, you know, um, a difference, of course, from the Lehman Brothers global financial crisis is here in the crypto world, there is no lender of last resort. And so we're seeing this amazing, almost like an experiment or sort of a a simulation as to what might have happened in 2008, 2009, if the Fed had not stepped in and, and you know, um, used the, the, the vassal of AIG to backstop the rest of Wall Street. Um, here, um, we're seeing a rolling series of bankruptcies. And, um, and of course, a lot of these are Ponzi schemes and the whole clawback uh, and bankruptcy of, of people who got money out of the Ponzi is going to be an interesting thing to see, you know, the precedent of the Bernie Madoff uh, collapse and the new rules um, that have been put in place under bankruptcy. But again, all this is sort of unprecedented and there's no real uh, case law for it yet. So that's another thing to watch is how this all develops. I will say while the, the concept of rehypothecation is, is, of course, totally legal and happens in the, in the regulated financial system, I do think that most of these lending programs were, in fact, unregulated securities. The SEC has said as much. And um, there, if you look hard enough, you can find a crime in just about anything. And so um, I do think there was some things going on in the crypto world that did cross the line uh, into criminality and, and especially as uh, Bankman Fried, I, I will concur with you, Ben, and use his, his real name. Um, Bankman Fried even admitted as much on a, on a recent Twitter spaces that, um, you know, the, even though the terms of service may have said um, that uh, you're, you're not, you don't want this posted as collateral and you want it in a segregated account, he, he said something to the effect of uh, there were other terms in the terms of service that overrode that one. Um, it's very clear that this was a giant commingled um, fund that Bankman Fried used. Uh, to pilfer uh, in classic Ponzi style, as Ben has described. I've I've got a um, you know, I, I want to maybe try to tie a little bit of a bow on this and try to parse out what is maybe within the within the realm of gross negligence versus what could possibly wade into the realm of criminality. Because I think that's the big question that people, myself included, don't have super clear answer on. So. Let's say Ben that we take your perspective here that all of this was basically a fraud to extract customer funds. Unproven as of now, but like, let's say the idea is to extract dollars either out of the fiat system, touching customer dollars, whatever it is. I've got a pretty clear understanding of that when it comes to Alameda and FTX, right? There's some kind of hedge fund, right? They make markets in the beginning. Now there's even reason to question how successful they ever really were at that, but maybe their edge gets eroded over time. Maybe they weren't as good as their thought, whatever it was, that stops working a little bit. Then in comes FTX. And you can see that there's a symbiotic relationship in between Alameda and FTX because Alameda directs its volume onto FTX, which is good both for Alameda because they have a privileged position at FTX in terms of they don't get liquidated, which is going to come in to your description about rehypothecation and margin accounts. That's a huge thing. They do not, they have no liquidation clause there. Uh, And they have you know, they trade in front of everyone and they see what everyone else is trading. So it's good for Alameda's profits, but it's also good for FTX, right? Because they're the owner of that flow. So I kind of see how that symbiotic relationship happens there. Then there's FTT, right? Which to, to borrow your phrase, Ben, that's uh, old wine, new bottle, right? This is one of those scams that's been run multiple times. It's a token now, but it could have been a low float stock, whatever it is. Uh, artificially constrict something, you pump up the value, pledge it as collateral, borrow and take out real dollars. It seems like that was sort of, if you had to put a freight, like the business model of Alameda and FTX was actually FTT and extracting US dollars. Here's here's the thing though, that I want to, I think there are a couple, couple key questions here, which is one, Ben, if all of this was done under margin lending, that would be one thing. And this is just rehypothecation gone extremely bad. But the question here is, were they touching customer accounts that were not supposed to be impacted by the margin lending part of the business, right? There was just, these are customer accounts that weren't necessarily subject to that. And then two, is there is there some kind of break? Is it illegal basically for them to 
Because roughly what I hear Sam uh, Bankman-Fried saying is, well, Alameda took an enormous margin position on FTX. I didn't know, despite owning 90% of the company, I didn't know how large that position was, right? I had no oversight of that. Okay. But because of how large that was and the collateral wasn't managed correctly, it ended up taking out, when that loss was realized, it ended up taking out all these other funds. But I don't understand how the loss of one large position, right? FTX should be managing that collateral and dumping it at the correct time. That shouldn't necessarily touch all the other customer funds, right? So walk, I think those I think those are some of the key points about what makes this cross from criminal neg- or negligence, at least, into outright fraud. But for, bo- for both of you, when you're kind of looking at this, uh, and then maybe we can get into some of the the more mainstream coverage of this. What are what would you what do you kind of bucket in the? Okay, I don't know what they were thinking, but this was just very negligent. Into okay, this at least looks like based on the information that we have today, this could fall into the bucket of fraud. I'm reminded there's this great scene. Have you seen the movie The Fugitive? Right. Mm-hmm. So you know Harrison Ford is the fugitive, and. Uh, um, You've got the, the the U.S. Marshal. Oh hell, why am I blanking on his name? Tommy Lee Jones. Thanks. I did say so, so, right. So so Tommy Lee Jones. So he's pursuing Harrison Ford, and Harrison Ford gets the drop on him. He's got the gun on him, and he says, "I didn't kill my wife." And Tommy Lee Jones says, "I don't care." <laughs> so that I I am Tommy Lee Jones in all of this. I don't care. I don't care if you didn't know. <laughs> Right. I don't care if I don't, you know, well, we thought we were doing this. We were really doing this. I don't care. It would not be allowed in the U.S. I suspect it is not allowed in the Bahamas for two. I don't even want to call them related parties. I don't even really call them affiliates. They're the same company. This idea that Alameda is over here and FTX is over there is bullshit, right? And it, it, I don't care if you didn't know. I don't care if it was accidental or it was poorly marked or there were accounting, you know, mislabeling. I don't care, right? This is all illegal. And... You know, are are there ways through the magic of rehypothecation where one thing can go to another, right? Absolutely, as I was describing in way too much detail, right? Is it legal to have a setup where you've got, you're telling the world that you are a a market maker and a broker dealer and that you have all these controls in place for managing collateral and margin and the like, and yet for the other part of your company, you know, not Alameda over here, it's the other part of your company. There are none of these controls and you're just doing whatever the, whatever you feel like doing. I, I don't care what you say. This is all illegal. It just is. And, and, and this notion of, oh, is, is Bankman Freed telling the truth? Or, or, oh, is he, is he lying? I don't care. The only thing I would add is um, a couple of points from personal experience. One, many years ago, I I made the mistake of reading the disturbing book by um, Harvey Silvergate called Three Felonies a Day. And if you haven't um, read that book, I I suggest you don't. But the the point of the book is that the average U.S. citizen commits up to three felonies a day and doesn't even know it. Um, And and the subtitle of that book is How the Feds Target the Innocent. Um, that's, That's the first part. The second part is a few weeks ago, I had to send a relatively modest amount of money in comparison to what's being discussed here to a relative overseas. And the uh, interrogation and root canal that I had to go through to wire that money from my US-based mm-hmm. bank account to a very reputable bank in a, in a G7 country um, was incredible. And it took about an hour. And uh, you had the feeling of like needing to take a shower and that this my money in this bank account doesn't belong to me uh, to the extent that uh, you sort of have to strip naked to, to get an, a, a reasonable amount of money sent overseas these days. You combine that with the fact that um, people wiring money to FTX were actually sending it to Alameda because FTX didn't have banking. And you're trying to tell me that the feds can't find some wire fraud in here if they went looking. Um, I don't know. It seems to me um, 
what the, the fate of the players involved uh, will come down to uh, how aggressive prosecutors want to be because um, as anybody who has interacted with uh, the feds uh, finds out pretty quickly, um, they, they go look and they can find something. And uh, so it's, it's going to come down to how motivated uh, the prosecutors are in this case uh, to make an example of some of the people. And let's be totally honest, the system isn't fair. Like some people get away with stuff and some people get disproportionately charged. Um, but uh, uh, if you read the book, Three Felonies a Day, and then you observe that people sending money to FTX were actually wiring it to Alameda, um, it's pretty impossible for me to believe that there isn't some chicanery in here that would be uh, sufficient for a prosecutor to bring a case. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance, and as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. I think a lot of folks, maybe, maybe who are more on the crypto side of things and maybe they lost money or maybe they're disillusioned or just outraged in general have been sort of raising the question of why haven't there been criminal indictments brought and what is eventually going to happen here and you know i th- i think part of that has contributed to i don't want to say you know some some implications right people kind of looked at the corporate structure of ftx and they said oh my gosh this looks really complicated and this looks like a very sophisticated actor you know potentially kind of wading into the area of like the deep state kind of setting this up and and all of that sort of thing. And um, maybe I could just ask the two of you to comment on, do you see this as being an SBF isolated actor sort of thing? Or does this kind of, is this connected to him donating to politicians? And do you see sort of state actors or a a grander play sort of uh, in place here? Maybe I'll start. Um, I, I, for the record, don't think that you need to have a web of conspiracy to explain what as Ben described is um, is is an old school fraud wrapped in um, the crypto language du, du jour um, and there's no question that uh, scammers uh, of all types have uh, in time memoriam been uh, using ill-gotten gains to buy um, press coverage and political cover for their nefarious activities and uh, unless and until uh, we see far more evidence um, I think the Occam's razor would indicate that uh, the simplest uh, hypothesis that this was just a scammer who used his political connections to buy himself legitimacy and to um, to give him a regulatory cover. And there's no question that, you know, that given his donations and his parents work uh, in, in the progressive side of politics, um, he certainly probably had uh, better access than Ben and I could get uh, when he traveled to D.C. Um, but um, the. the uh, I like to say, uh, if there truly was a, a deep state conspiracy, why why was it allowed to unravel in the way that it did? It just seems like um, seems just kind of easier to explain uh, using sort of standard uh, political analysis and and criminal behavior. I, I I tend to agree with that explanation, although that last line bums me out a little bit, Dunberg, to hear you say because if it was a deep state conspiracy, it never would have unraveled. Implies that there are deep state conspiracies <laughs> that just never get brought to the surface. Yeah, because they're oh, so connected. Yeah. So violent agreement with Doomberg on this. I I think that when you look at Bankman Fried's uh, political lobbying and work, it was all geared towards getting a regulatory benefit, and specifically what he was trying to get. And it's really kind of two things. One is. Uh, and this legislation is still going forward, he's trying to get uh, what's called self-certifying 
for his uh, futures business with FTX US. We'll come back to what self-certifying is. Uh, what he was also trying to get from the SEC was a no-action letter, uh, meaning that uh, you kind of get in writing ahead of time that the SEC won't come after you if you do something. And that something that he wanted to do was to self-clear and self-settle uh, the trades that, that he was making. My strong view is that if he had been successful, and I think ultimately would have been successful if we had had the collateral issues that he had, uh, we would never have caught him. And the reason I say that is that you go back to Bernie Madoff. You know, he had his Ponzi scheme going on, but Bernie Madoff also had a big legit business uh, where he was a market maker. And, you know, he had a floor of people with, you know, 100 people in front of 100 screens and they were doing real work. All right. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a, a front. He he had a, a, a real market-making business. As part of that market-making business, he had gotten a waiver that he cleared his own trades. This, by the way, is like red flag of all red flags. If you're giving your money to a hedge fund or to an asset manager, are they clearing their own trades? Because what it means is there are no eyeballs on what happens, on which accounts the money comes from, on how you settle this and how you settle that. So I, I believe that all these donations and all this lobbying work was geared towards this self-clearing and self-settling and self-certifying, which is basically that you can launch whatever product, some new token or the like, and trade futures on it without getting permission from anyone in advance, right? So it was the ability to basically start trading all these unregistered securities, basically tokens on the on on you know FTX US. So I think that was what he was trying to achieve. Again, all going back to this idea of he had this massive essentially fraud in mind from the start, or almost from the start, and these were all parts to that. I don't think you have to get much more complicated than that, Michael. The the some of the coverage emanating from the traditional news outlets does feed the sort of conspiratorial furnace a little bit here. If you just look at some of the bizarre um, puff pieces, almost you would call them, you know, this was just a, a highly distracted, uh, but well-intended uh, crazy genius who, who just misplaced $8 billion of customer funds. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's not doing the sort of people who would prefer to stay anchored to uh, Occam's razor any favors. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with you. Maybe it's worth, you know, go, going down, just un, you know, pulling at that thread a little bit, it was it was very surprising to me. If I had to trace it to all one piece, it was that original New York Times interview. Uh, I, I think that really helped set the trajectory of the narrative here in Sam's favor. And as someone who's in not the mainstream media but a media position myself, I found a lot of things pretty odd with that piece. So just to give some folks language, right, around what would almost be standard procedure for a position like that. The New York Times is fully aware that that piece is going to get a lot of eyeballs, right? Media outlets and reporters in general are very concerned, rightly so. This is the function that they serve in society. Speaking truth to power, if someone has in an, the allegations that Sam had, you don't just necessarily take their word for everything that they're saying, right? You need to get secondary sources, uh, even if they, especially if they don't necessarily agree or corroborate with everything that Sam was saying. Notably from that piece, there were none. And I understand that in the media. Sometimes you have to move fast, but I think from an edit, it was a very interesting editorial decision to not air any other interviews, any, like couldn't find one industry commentator, employee, anything to even poke at what he was saying it was very odd. I also think people have rightly pointed out, I think a lot of the editorializing that media, do, media does is sort of in the parentheticals. So it's the details that they choose to include and the details that this New York Times piece felt relevant to include was not the allegations of fraud or the commingling of funds or anything like that. It was his charity work. It was the pandemic prevention. It was XYZ positive things. So I think that was the piece that I found just very, very, I don't want to say odd because I don't want this to feed into conspiracy theories. I thought it was really irresponsible. Uh, let me, let me jump in here, Michael. I, I, totally agree with the 
I'll call it the early pieces that were written by the Times, also by the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. um, which, frankly, I think the Journal has actually kind of persisted in this a little bit more than, than the New York Times. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that more recent articles by the New York Times have been, if you read it, I think much more to the facts and, and damning, frankly. Good. So uh, particularly there was a New York Times piece that really broke the um, the stake, the equity stake that FTX took in Farmington State Bank, now called Moonstone Bank. Uh, so they, they were the really ones who really put that out there first. And then second, they also wrote, I found just a, a, a really revealing piece about the um, the role of his parents, particularly his father, in lobbying and getting donations to um, organizations that could kind of create this aura or patina of doing good works. Uh, you know, they also broke the story about the, the the property transactions in in the Bahamas, which are just, I mean, that's just that's just that's just illegal, right? That's just, that's just, that's just, it's just bullshit. And, and Bankman Freed had no explanation for that. And then also the donations to um, political uh, people. And really I found kind of pulling no punches. So anyway, very much agree on the early stuff. I think more recently, I, I'd actually think that mainstream media, whatever you call it, has been doing a much better job. Um, maybe it's because, you know, once once the house of cards falls down, there ain't no more donations that are coming from Bankman Freed ever. Mm, mm. So maybe that's it, right? So the you know, once once the gravy ta- gravy train stops, it's uh, it's 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 a lot easier to start mm. biting that hand that used to feed you, but will feed you no more. A couple of points I'd add, Michael, is uh, just put on the record. I think the Financial Times has been very consistent from the beginning and doing an excellent mm. job in reporting on this. And then there's a whole cadre of online investigators, Substack writers, uh, Twitter accounts that I think uh, can move much faster and with much more uh, frankness and honesty. And, and we're seeing the evolution of the media business before our eyes, which, of course, is something that, um, in a way, all three of us are involved in. So, Yeah. I, you know, the, the one thing that I want to actually, I'll defend mainstream media a little bit here. I, I would push back a tiny bit against some of these, oh, Sam Bankman feed was essentially paying for positive coverage at a media outlet. I'm not, I, maybe this is, I'm just straight up not cynical enough. I don't really see how that would, I know a lot of reporters, right? We employ a lot of reporters, but I know reporters have some of the mainstream outlets like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera. There is not only, there's a really solid firewall, I think, in between the editorial and the commercial parts of those businesses, but also if you've ever spoken to reporters or know them, they are loath to, right? Everyone knows in the media business, you can't ever cross that firewall because the good reporters will leave. If you tell them, if you tell them you can't report or, or even just the suggestion of kid gloves for someone who's a big sponsor, it just doesn't make business sense. You just have to trust people's incentives because is the operator of a media outlet I know to never, even if it's like, oh my gosh, I really like, no, don't do it. It's easy. It's a business decision not to because you can't host and employ good people. And ultimately, I think all these outlets have a good understanding of what they're really building as a brand. So the one thing I will push back on is that somehow he was paying people and that's currying good favor. I, I don't believe in that, to be honest. Yeah, 100%, Michael. I'd say the one exception to that are kind of the the institutional media puff pieces so that you know the forbes you know 30 under 30 or mm. the you know the fortune you know 400 list or 100 list those things are institutionalized and guys like bankman freed or a donald trump or a lot of them put a lot of effort into getting onto those lists and staying on those lists mm. uh, but i so that aspect is absolutely bought and paid for but you're totally right about the incentives for an individual journalist, you know, you, yeah, it, you, you, you don't want to cross that line or you just, you just, you blow up your own career and that's, that's not something anyone wants to do. And I yeah. do think there's also something to be uncovered in the, the means by which um, people get interviewed on certain business oriented television channels as well. Um, I think there's, uh, if you start digging into the, um, the uh, public affairs firms that run cover for uh, perennial guests on such channels. Um, 
I think our mutual friend, uh, Mark Cahotas, has done some interesting work in that regard, Ben. And um, so we'll see. Time will tell. Um, all of this stuff will eventually get aired um, over time. Uh, mm. 100%. Yeah. Well, and you got to get you got to give credit to Mark, Mark Cahotas, for those of you who are, I'm sure many of you will be familiar, but very, you know, uh, short seller of, of great repute. And he was sort of calling BS earlier and, and louder, I think, than, than many folks on on FTX, pointing out what I think many people this is the okay. So I'd love to maybe pose a question to you. So maybe there were three different groups of people here that are supposed to be responsible for, for preventing these sorts of alleged frauds or activities or whatever we want to call it at this particular moment in time. There's the investors that are supposedly doing due diligence. There's the media who are supposed to be covering without a biased lens and even doing investigative reporting type work. And then there are regulators. So I'd love to, you know, with those three buckets out there, I mean, who do you think has fallen down the most here? Who was the most, who, if, if you had to say, put your hand up and say, there's, there's culpability attributed to those three buckets, how would you divide it up? So I, I could start and I would say, you know, of the three, I think the, um, the venture funds and their lack of due diligence is the most easily explained. Um, you know, having done a fair bit of work in the VC space and in the private markets, you know, the, every deal is undersubscribed except for the ones that are oversubscribed. And um, we were in the middle of a VC mania. I mean, let's call it what it was, a private market mania. And uh, when you're in the middle of a VC mania, the only thing that matters to you is deal flow and access to the hot deals. And for a certain subcategory of founders um, who get the reputation, perhaps purchased, of being, you know, a can't miss, you just need to be in the deal. You don't even care about the terms. You don't look at the terms. Um, and so that's, that behavior is consistent with other private market um, uh, manias of the past. And, and the, we were certainly deep in one, you know, the SPAC mania and getting into all those deals and getting into the pipes of the, of the hot deals that are going to come off at $25 a share when you're buying in at 10. Um, you know, so I think the, the VC firms not doing due diligence um, is the most explainable to me. Um, I'll let Ben um, kick in on on to what extent, uh, you know, the, the regulators uh, and the media hold some accountability here? Yeah, I, I, I tell you, the, the, the issue I primarily have with regulators is the revolving door and the that, that former regulators, right? So the head of lobbying for FTX was a uh, former CFTC commissioner. Uh, this summer, they hired another former CFTC commissioner. Um, you know, the general counsel was uh, with was was similarly a general counsel. You know, of the, the CFTC. It's it's a very similar thing that uh, so many players in our business, particularly flow players like Citadel, for example, do right. I mean, they hire the the regular once you leave the, the 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 regulator position, there's typically a a great job waiting for you within the regulated. And to me, that is that's um, that is the original sin that lends itself to all these aspects of regulatory capture. What I will say, though. Is this in defense of the regulators a little bit, particularly in defense of the SEC? They didn't give Bankman Freed what he was looking for. Right? He didn't get that no action letter from the SEC. He had not, at least yet, gotten the legislation passed that would have given the CFTC so much more jurisdiction over what he was doing. Was he moving quickly in that direction? Was there a lot of access and, and all the like that, that happened here? Absolutely, right? But we just got to be clear, it hadn't happened yet. The place where I see so much of the blame is in, let's call it both the allowance from a regulatory perspective of these crypto yield programs, other people trading unregistered securities that we have not cracked down on. And there's been a lot of congressional defense of that, oh, you know, people can make up their own decisions and, you know, we shouldn't be regulating this. These aren't securities. 
their securities, right? And and there are reasons why you want your securities regulated. There really are. And where that combines with the media aspect gets back to this, the, the, the promotion and the pumping of unregulated securities, unregulated lending, all using the language of banking and insurance and federal support. That to me is what gets my blood boiling. And frankly, it's less of a, of a Bankman Freed thing, although that's where he was going. And it's much more of what I like to call the, the raccoons of Wall Street, right? The, the people who have been promoting and pumping these schemes forever, forever. And um, they're the ones that, 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 that give me the most heartburn to your question, Michael. Mm. Could I, you know, Jim Chano says this great phrase, right? We're living in the golden age of fraud. I've listened to a whole bunch of Jim Chano's interviews over the year, and he said something, can't remember if this was, this was probably three or four years ago, maybe. And he said something to the effect of fraud is never uncovered when everything is going up, right? It's never uncovered when it's actually happening. Fraud tends to get uncovered when everything has turned around and everyone's lost a whole bunch of money and everyone is looking for someone to blame. Regulators tend to operate sort of with a lagging effect in that regard. I'd, I'd be curious, you know, we focused this talk primarily on SBF and in crypto in general. I also have to say at this point, I'm a fan of crypto in general. I, I'm, I, I hate what has happened in this particular situation. I hate the optics and the broad brush that people are painting. There's so much good that's happening in this industry. But I think it, look, you got to call balls and strikes. And there were, there were, there was, this was a very bad actor, but a lot of people gave him a pass for a very long period of time. So this was just not great. But like zooming out and talking about the mania that happened in crypto also happened in tech stocks, right? And SPACs and all these other areas of, of markets in the economy. Do you expect to see more of this come out? How, how do we kind of end a, a golden age of, of fraud, I suppose? Maybe I'd pose that question to both of you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think Chano says, um, you know, regulators are better archaeologists than detectives, I believe is the phrase that he uses. And, um, and I think we're past peak fraud. Um, I think we're uh, with the recent sort of decline in some of the manias, you know, the SPAC bubble bursting and, and the uh, crypto bubble bursting. Um, uh, I think we're going to see um, more and more people get arrested and perp walks um, occur. And then I think, um, you know, the, the market really won't bottom until all of the fraud is cleaned up, which is sort of typical at this phase in the cycle. And, and what really smokes out these frauds, of course, is the, is the fiat flow shutting down. And so if, if you operate a business that, um, or you're operating a fraud that requires a constant flow of new funds to keep the plates spinning, that's when you start to see the plates start to fall is when people think that the market is going to crash. And, um, and, and you know, the, the old phrase is it's amazing how fast you can run out of money when people think you might. Um, all of these liquidity runs have the, yeah. same, uh, the same form to them. And so I think um, now that the, the, the fiat wheel uh, is slowing and, and people are beginning to turtle up, um, with incremental funds, um, we'll have to smoke out a few more frauds. Um, and, you know, seeing um, the likes of, uh, of uh, Trevor Milton actually get convicted and looks like he's going to be doing some jail time and Elizabeth Holmes. But even Elizabeth Holmes tells you how much time it's going to take. It's been years uh, and years since that fraud was uncovered. And, um, and she, she won't be going to jail until sometime next year, I, I understand. Um, and so uh, it's it's just at uh, the wheels of justice turn slow when they do turn. Um, but I think there's a lot more fraud to be smoked out in the market um, and the rising interest rates and sort of uh, tightening of the cash uh, and the turning off of the liquidity is, is only going to accelerate the exposure of those frauds. You know, Michael, I, I think what is so frustrating to me, I think to everyone, is that it's not just a perception, there's a reality in which the big frauds go, if not supported, at least unnoticed, for a very long time, while at the same time, not even fraud, but, but, but just tiny little 
things like, oh, you're an RIA and you don't footnote on a graph of the S&P 500 that the S&P 500 is uninvestable, right? The index, you can't invest in the S&P 500 index. And you get, oh, I'm sorry, I look at your marketing, but you know, you'll, you'll get your, your review and you know, look through your marketing materials that you didn't, you didn't footnote that correctly, right? So that, that, that's going to be a $20,000 fine. It's, it's, you know, it's this disparity between this high scrutiny on procedural meaningless stuff that everyone involved in our industry knows what I'm talking about. Enormous scrutiny on this stuff that, that is ridiculous. And yet a massive fraud can go on for a long time and get revealed through no actions of regulators, but by some internal blow up and then regulators then come in and do what they do. So I, I don't have an answer to that, but it's that, but, but it's that disjuncture between intense scrutiny on the minutiae and what seems like bl enormous blind spots in large part, I think because of the revolving door between the regulated and the regulators that is, I think at the, at the heart of why so many people are frustrated with the regulatory system. I, I would have to agree with you there, Ben. One, uh, you know, as a, I, I would still call myself sort of a, I was a classic liberal arts sort of college student and I, you know, studied the classics and psychology. So coming to finance was a little new for me. One of the craziest things when I, when I found out about it was this revolving door. I just couldn't believe that people who were supposed to be in charge, third party biased, regulated. How is this legal? I, yeah. I, could, I mean, right. if, this is, this is clearly a bribe. It's just, it's just a bribe that's, that's displaced in time. Staggered in time. <laughs> that's yeah. all it is. It's a staggered right. bribe. That's how, Yeah. I, I think if you looked up the definition of corruption, it'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a more clear cut instance of that. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, gentlemen, this has been this has been this has been great. I, I want to leave it just because this is you know we're interviewing we're recording this on December fifth, so we're nearing the end of the year. We talked about a whole lot of negative stuff. Give me one positive thing. And let's let's end on a positive note. What is one thing that you are positive about, or optimistic about, or looking forward to going into twenty twenty three? Just one thing. I'll start, uh, so and I'll keep to markets, right? I, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, you know, I go back with Mark and with Jim and all like this. I, I will say, I I don't see, and I think I've got a good spidey sense for this stuff. I don't see a systemic risk in the U.S. financial system the way I absolutely did in '08. Hmm. Right. I, 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 I'm looking for that, you know, multi-trillion dollar asset class that's in banks that the books are wrong. I, it's, it's the absence of a bad thing, right? It's the absence of my spidey sense tingling on this that I'll leave with as a, as, as a good thing for, for, for 2023. Yeah. And I, I'll just say, um, as you mentioned earlier, there is some interesting things going on in these sort of broadly labeled crypto space. And mm. um, one of the things that I'm paying careful attention to is the suite of companies and technologies that survive this wipeout. Uh, and once the full contagion is done, um, there might be some opportunities to make some measured investments in the space uh, in the surviving technologies or, or companies. Um, and you might be able to get them sort of at generational bargain type um, type levels. And the, of course, these sort of Tired analogy would be, um, you know, Amazon survived the dot-com bubble and look what a great buy that was. Um, took a long time for it to pay off. But my point is um, just because there's a tsunami of hucksters and fraud and scams and Ponzi's blowing up in the crypto space doesn't mean that every relatively intelligent uh, entrepreneur trying to cut their teeth in that space is up to no good and uh, has nothing of value to add to the world. And I would be um, amongst those looking to inspect the, the wreckage for uh, for the things that survive. And so I do think uh, from the depths of below in the crypto space, just like every other crash, there will be a few things um, that, that persist on the other side. And those are going to be pretty interesting and potentially pretty valuable. Hmm. 
gentlemen, this has been uh, an enormous pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having this conversation. Both of you are repeat on the margin guests. I dare say many of our listeners will know you from outside of just on the margin as well. But if you could uh, give some information about how to follow the good work that you do or, or you know, uh, plug some of the work that you do at Epsilon Theory or, or Doomberg, the Substack, uh, please give, give reader or listeners a, what's the best way to follow your, your work. I'm easy. I'm Epsilon Theory. That's EpsilonTheory.com, at EpsilonTheory on Twitter, and uh, come on by. We've got lots to read. Yeah, and of course, um, you could find us on Twitter at DoombergT, add the letter T to the end of Doomberg. Uh, T is in Twitter. Um, and of course, Doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we are 100% subscriber-supported um, and uh, really blessed to be doing this for a living. And, and truly, the, the most positive thing for me to end on is the fact that uh, Doomberg has been such, so much fun to do, and, and it's a real blast to come on your show every time, and, and happy to come back anytime you'll have us. Thanks, guys. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much. We'll have to do it again soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.